Let's open our Bibles again to the book of Colossians as we continue. Colossians chapter 2. Follow with me as I read verses 6 through 10. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It is that last phrase in verse 10 that gives us our theme for this morning. Christ is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is king over all. Well, another Christmas is now gone. However, lest we quickly forget the significance of the first coming of Jesus Christ. I want to keep today's scripture tied to the incarnation of the Son of God, which is what the apostle is doing in this context as well. But from verse 10, we again see that Jesus, the Son of God, possesses all divine authority. He is king over all, which of course includes every person saved and unsaved. As it was at the coming of Christ, so it remains true today that not all who hear him are willing to bow their knee before him. According to scripture, the magi, or the wise men from the east, when they arrived, they worshipped the king. When exactly this visit took place, we don't know. We, We know that it took place sometime after the shepherds, because instead of finding the Son of God in a stable, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the wise men found Mary and Jesus in a house. And in light of what the book of Daniel teaches us about the Magi as a class of people, educated people, that we may safely assume that these men from the east came from as far as Babylon or Persia. So their journey would have been 700 to 1,000 miles long. It was a long journey. Anyway, the exact time of their arrival is not really as important as their response to the child Jesus. The second chapter of Matthew reads this way, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They did this because God had warned them that Herod was intending to kill 
the Messiah. And um, so God sent the wise men a different direction rather than back to Herod to disclose the location of this new king that Herod already totally despised in his heart. And so herein lies a great contrast between King Herod and the Magi. One claimed to want to worship the king, but inwardly had no desire to bow to his authority, while the Magi did the opposite. They saw themselves as humble subjects of the king, and they worshiped him. In his book, Child in a Manger, Sinclair Ferguson wraps up the book by drawing this contrast between King Herod and uh, the wise men who came from the east. We might wonder why they went to Jerusalem first. Well, it it makes sense if you're going to look for a king that you'd go to the capital city. Ferguson writes, the title, King of the Jews, that almost cost Jesus his life at birth, in the end did cost him his life. But why this fear of Jesus? Had Herod responded in faith as these wise men had done, or as the shepherds did, or as Mary and Joseph did, would he have been any less a king because he loved and trusted the Savior? No. At the end of the day, the real kingdom that Herod most feared losing was the kingdom in his own heart. It is the same for us all until Christ masters us. People love to hear the Christmas music, even to sing the familiar Christmas carols. But often hearts seem to go cold when they hear about the true meaning of Christmas, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The tragic response then, whether verbalized or not, is let us sing the familiar songs whose tunes we know and love, but do not talk to us about being saved from our sins. Let us enjoy Christmas without Christ. Being deeply troubled by the birth of Jesus Christ was not only part of Herod's Christmas, it is part of every Christmas. The light shines, but the clearer it shines, the greater the efforts of the darkness to resist it. Not only was Herod deeply troubled by the birth of Christ, but his response to the Magi was deceptive and hypocritical. Ferguson goes on to say, the first Christmas exposed Herod as a hypocrite. Hypocrite is an interesting word, usually associated with religion. The root of the word lies in ancient theater. The Greek word was used of an interpreter or an actor. In antiquity, rather than going into the makeup room, actors wore masks. Here then was a perfect word picture to describe someone who pretended to be something he or she was not or pretended not to be what he or she actually was. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that those who know they are loved and accepted by the Father no longer need to wear a mask. They have no need to pretend to God because they are conscious that he knows them already and he loves them. They have no need to pretend to others because they are secure in their relationship to their Heavenly Father. 
What significance does the opinion of another human have in comparison? But if we lack this, there will always be times when we need to wear a mask, just like Herod. And then Sinclair concludes with this. There is a principle illustrated here. When presented with the message of Christ, the king, we must either yield or begin to find ways of defending ourselves against his perceived threats to our lives. Deceit may be the result. It comes in various guises. We pretend to be something we are not, secure when we are insecure, claiming not to believe what we know deep down to be true. Pretending to be religious or even Christian when in our hearts we resist the Savior. This is a really fitting comparison for us to think about this morning, not only because it's a week after Christmas, but because of the key lesson we're learning from verse 10. And if you've been worshiping with us for a little bit, then you know that this is a recurring theme in the book of Colossians. Paul established the preeminence of King Jesus in chapter 1. And then in verse 6 of chapter 2, which we already read, he shows how this truth applies to the believer. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The, the apostle could not have been clearer. He is saying that those who come to Jesus in saving faith come to him with a certain humility of heart, a posture of submission to him and to his lordship. This does not mean that when we come to Jesus for salvation, that we are aware of all of the ramifications of his lordship in our lives. Obviously, we are growing in that. But it does seem consistent with all that the New Testament teaches us, that when a person comes to Jesus for salvation, there is a certain posture of humility of heart that doesn't just say, Jesus, I want you as my savior, but take a hike if you want to be my Lord. There is a heart posture of the one who is being moved by the Holy Spirit of God to come to repentant faith in Jesus. So to correct a common misunderstanding, we do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord, whether you recognize it or not. Whether you bow to him or not, he is Lord. We don't make him Lord. But what should be happening in our lives as believers is that progressively, more and more, we are learning to walk in submission to that lordship that already belongs to him. The Bible is consistent in its teaching that those who are born again by the Spirit and the Word become, over time, increasingly submissive to their new king. 
Another way of saying it is this. You cannot have the kingdom without having the king. And yet there are too many professing Christians today who demonstrate that that is exactly what they want, to be in the kingdom with all of the benefits of the kingdom, but without the rule of the king. And so Paul's repeated admonition to the Colossian church is to what? Grow in submission to Christ Jesus, the Lord. And that ought to be a chief aim of ours in the coming year. That we would be growing in an increasing level of submission to the Lord who only has our best interest at heart. Now, if you look back at verse 10 of chapter 2, you can see the first part of the verse, what we focused on last week, that the indwelling spirit of God has filled every true believer, and therefore by our union with Christ, we are in the language of Paul, we have been filled in him. That is, we stand in a position of spiritual completeness in Christ. Before God. But the Christ whom we are united to is fully God. Look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the one in whom we are united by faith is God. He is the Lord. And so it only makes natural sense then that as we have come to this Lord for salvation, that then the result of that will be a growth process of humility and submission to his rulership as king. Now, if you look back at chapter 1, you might be reminded here, if you've been with us for a little bit, what we learned about the preeminence of Jesus Christ in verse 15 That Jesus is the creator. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. He is the preeminent one. He is the one who occupies the highest position of honor, like the firstborn. And it's through him that all things were created. And he is before all things And in him all things hold together, verse 17 says. So Jesus Christ is the creator. He's also the sustainer of what he has created. And then the chapter goes on to teach that not only is Jesus the creator of the physical world, but he's also the new creator of the new creation that is believers those who find their salvation in him. So that brings us to our big idea this morning, and that is this, that Jesus is the actual head over all rule and authority. That's clearly what verse 10 teaches, but in the surrounding context before and after verse 10, we see also that this means that he should be the functional head of all who are united to him by faith. Jesus is the actual head 
over all rule and authority. And because that is true, and because we have been united with him through faith, he should be the functional head of our lives. Again, verses 6 and 7 are pretty clear. We are to walk in this one whom we received, who is the Lord. And this means being rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. In other words, there's a, there's a link to his word. And they have hearts that are filled with thanksgiving. So when we come to Jesus for salvation, we don't say in our hearts, Jesus, thank you for being my Savior, but don't get any idea of functioning as my Lord as well. I need forgiveness of my sins. I need release from my guilt, but I don't really need any help running my life. And such a mindset or a state of heart is unregenerate, according to the testimony of the New Testament. The Spirit's purpose is to exalt Christ in all of his glory. Therefore, when the Holy Spirit does his work of giving birth to a new creature in Christ, he begins his work of renovating the heart. And it is a thorough renovation. He reworks the heart that is by nature rebellious against the king and brings it more and more into subjection to the wonderful king, Jesus. And so I hope and pray that one of your prayers will will be like mine this year, and that will be, Lord, continue to show me the areas of my life, whether big or small, that I don't see yet where I am not living in full submission to you where I'm still functioning as my own Lord and Master. And as we pray that way, I believe the Spirit of God will show us areas where we need to repent and submit to God. So this work of the Holy Spirit has obvious ramifications for our lives, which we see explained by the Apostle Uh, in the book of Colossians. So this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at two applications of this doctrine to life, specifically ways in which the apostle himself applies it in the book of Colossians. First, since Jesus is the head of all rule and authority and the Spirit has filled us in him, the first application is every church member and leader is subject to him and his word. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 18. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. So he has a position of authority, ultimate authority, over the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus Christ, as creator, is preeminent. As redeemer of believers, he is preeminent. Evidence of this is his very resurrection from the dead. And in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why? Why did Jesus reconcile us to God? In order to present you, verse 22, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We come into the kingdom by the new birth, into the family of God, into the church. And by doing so, we receive a new king. And this new king has an agenda. And his agenda is to change us, transform us from the inside out, completely renovate our hearts so that then our lives follow after that. He does this through the word. He does this through the gospel. Verse 23 makes it very clear. It is the hope of the gospel that they heard, which is the instrument that the Spirit of God is using. So every believer, every member of the church is to be subject to Jesus Christ who is the head. And what does that look like? It means being subject to his word because that's how he has revealed his will to us. But it's not just every member of the church, but every leader of the church is also equally subject to Jesus Christ as head. Look at verse 25, some of this might bring back memories for you as we looked at this already, but notice that the apostle, in his position of leadership in this church and many other churches at that time, he considered this ministry of the word to be a stewardship from God. This stewardship was to make the word of God fully known. So his ministry was a ministry of the word And the word stewardship says to us that this is a ministry that is on loan to him from God that one day he will have to give an account to God for. And so every spiritual leader in the church will one day have to give an account to God for how he handled the Bible, how he handled the word of God whether or not he was faithful to teach it, whether or not he was faithful to pastorally apply it to the lives of the flock. What that all means then is that every one of us is subject to the king. If we belong to the kingdom of Christ, then none of us is exempt from the authority of the word of the king. So that's our first application. If we are truly united to Christ the Lord, then we will subject our will to his will, which is revealed in Scripture. There's a second application. This will take us into more places in the book. And that is that since Jesus is the head of all rule and authority and the Spirit has filled us in him, every believer's mind, life, 
and relationships are now subject to him. Everything about us is now subject to the king. Subject to this new Lord. Turn to chapter 3 where the apostle gets really specific and in, in doing so, very, very helpful to us to show us this is what the outworking of the gospel looks like and should look like in the lives of believers. That, that if you are a new creature in Christ, then these are some of the ways you ought to be seeing that new life evident in you. Notice verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, where we are called to subject our mind to the mind of God. Chapter 3, verse 1, if then, better translated, since then, because it's, it's building off of something that is already true, since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. In other words, since you positionally as believers are united to Jesus and have been raised up to this spiritual realm where he is and where all of his blessings are, seek that. Seek the things that are above. Not the things that are below, but seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Why should my thinking change as a Christian? Why should your thinking be different from the world? Because, Paul says, you have died. Your old life has died, and your new life is forever connected and hidden with Christ in God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you only have one life, biblically speaking. Yes, we have memories of the old life before we came to know Jesus, but we don't live there anymore. We now live in this realm of a new life as new creatures of Christ. And we do this looking forward to the day when Christ, who is our life, verse 4, appears. And then we also will appear with him in glory. The more you grow in Christ, the more you will see this expanding gulf <laughs> between the way that the world thinks and the way that God thinks. You'll grow in discernment. And you will not be following the philosophies and teachings of the world. But notice as we go on in the passage that we're also called to progressively conform our life to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verses 5 through 11 to mention many of the sins that we ought to put away from our lives. It says in verse 5, put to death Therefore, and the word therefore takes us back to the previous verses, which indicate that old life is dead. So put to death what is already dead. 
In other words, recognize that it's dead and now work to put it to death in, in the actual experience of your life. And what are some of these sins that we ought to be putting to death? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. He goes on, talk about um, sins of the tongue. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Lying, verse 9, ought to be put off. Why? Because that's a part of your old self. Your new self is now forever tied to truth. That's why, as believers, we ought to be the utmost in, as being truth tellers in every area of our life. We are being renewed, it says in verse 10, after the image of our creator. So what, is it, what does all this mean? It means we are to die to sin, which is the old self, and live as new creatures in Christ. And this, of course, only can happen through the power of of the Holy Spirit. So as we submit to the King, the Spirit of God empowers us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. But notice as he goes on then in chapter 3 that this new life in Christ also should govern our relationships. Knowing Christ changes every relationship in our life. It better That's the expectation, according to Scripture. Uh, Notice, first of all, relationships with other believers. Verses 12 through 14. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, if, if you know that you know the Lord, you are holy and beloved by God because he set you apart for himself, then How should you be relating to other believers with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, not complaining against each other, but forgiving each other. Why? Because the Lord has forgiven you. The more you and I meditate on the depth of God's mercy toward us and how much he has been forgiven of us, the more we will wonder if we are ever justified in this life to hold grudges against anyone. If we have been forgiven, we will forgive. If we have been reconciled, to God through Christ. We will be reconcilers. That's the whole point. Put off all that stuff and put on forgiveness, put on love, he says. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts by being in the word of God. Goes on in verse 18. Say that New life in Christ also should govern the marriage relationship. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That is, in other words, that's according to God's design, and this is fitting when you know Christ. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
These are all applications of the gospel. These are applications of new life in Christ. How does a wife learn to grow in respect and submission to her husband? It is through her own walk with Christ. How does a husband grow and learn how to love his wife unselfishly and to be gentle and kind to her? It is only through the new life in Christ. Christian marriages, according to the apostle, should stand out among all marriages in this world as being filled with the most love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness and perseverance and grace and on and on and on. Why? Because it is a reflection. Our marriage relationship is a reflection of who we are if you're married. If you're not married, if that's not God's calling for your life or if you're not married yet, understand that your relationship with the Lord is the most important relationship in your life because it will impact every horizontal relationship. Your vertical relationship with God is going to impact every single one of your horizontal relationships. He goes on to talk about the parent-child relationship. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This was one of the first verses we taught to our children. Young children have it really easy in life. There's really only one command that they need to think about in their younger years, and that is to honor and to obey their parents. We then, as, as parents, fathers particularly in verse 21, are called to not take advantage of that and then to provoke our children to anger and discouragement but to nurture them, to love them with the love of Christ. Then he goes on to even talk about employer-employee relationships. I mean, maybe you're sitting there thinking, are you, are you serious, Paul? And the Bible even says how I'm supposed to be a different kind of employee when I'm a Christian. Yeah, it does. Verse 22, bond servants... Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. See, we, we are people who live under many different structures of authority. And how we respond to those authority structures reveals our heart, what our heart is really like before God. And, and one of the authority structures that we all live in is we all work for somebody. I mean, even, even those of you who are self-employed, you work for somebody. You work for your customers. You work for the laws that you have to comply with. Nobody who lives on the surface of this planet is immune to being subject to various authorities. How we function in those authority structures is a revealer of our hearts. And so Paul says, don't be one of those employees who works 
only by way of eye service. In other words, the best week of work you get out of them is the one that precedes the annual um, job evaluation. Everyone's on their best behavior the week before job evaluations. Be one of those workers, Christian. Be one of those workers who is just always there, always faithful, always following through, whether you get patted on the back or not. Because it's not about eye service, and it's not about pleasing people. It is working with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Why? Because verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. One of the things I say to my, all of my children as they get into the, the work age, they typically start somewhere around age 14 getting their first job, is, is your calling right now for this phase of your life is to become the most faithful, hardworking employee wherever God puts you. Make that the pattern of your life. Don't be letting your mind run off to all the wonderful big world adventures that you want to do. That'll come if it's the Lord's will in his time. Right now, just work to become the best employee that your company has. Not because you're trying to win the Employee of the Month award, but because you know that there's a boss that you can't see. There's a Lord and a master that you can't see that's always watching. And that's not to instill some kind of cowering fear in us. What that does is it frees us up to do our best to the glory of God and to work for him. Young people, make that your goal. I get really concerned when I see high schoolers and college-age people making all these big, glorious plans for the rest of their life, and they have not yet established a work pattern of showing up on time and establishing those kinds of things, being the best faithful employee that their company has. So if that's the season of life you're in, young people, make that your preoccupation. Don't over-spiritualize things to say, well, yeah, but that's not really the Lord's work. It is the Lord's work. (laughs) Everything we do is the Lord's work. The whole point of, of me drawing you to these passages is to show you that our new life in Christ permeates every part of our lives. It's not a segregation. It's not a, well, this is my Christian life. This is my Sunday life, and this is my work week life. It's all permeates every part of our lives. Even, he goes on to say in chapter 4, even our relationships to unbelievers. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. How do you walk in wisdom toward unbelievers? Well, one application is verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walk in wisdom toward unbelievers. Don't be one of these Christian jerks who just really gets, gets high on, on offending people and then telling yourself and others that you are some kind of a martyr. When you're not, you're just a jerk. You know, I mean, just let's just be real. Let's be kind and gracious. Let's be overflowing with thanksgiving. Let's honor and respect people who are made in the image of God. Even if they're not yet believers in Christ, let us love them with the love of Christ and let our speech toward them be gracious, seasoned with salt so that we may know how to answer each person. And I'm growing in that, and I trust that you're growing in that too. Every day, it's, Lord, help me to be wise today. Help me to to use my speech in a wise way rather than a foolish way. So there can be no argument based upon this scripture that Jesus is the king over all. And and if you know him, then you are called to a new life of subjection to his kingly authority. And this alone is the way to live out the fullness of your life in Christ. So today, as we turn the page from one year to the next, let us choose to remember that Christ is the king. Let's remember who he is and let's remember who we are in him. That Jesus is the king and and we are connected to him through repentant faith in him as both Savior and Lord and therefore we are subjects to the king. We're not just beneficiaries of the kingdom living in rebellion against the king. We don't have the authority to pick which of his commands we obey and which we do not. The more we grow in him, the more his rule of life becomes our rule of life. Kent Hughes summarizes this portion of the book of Colossians really well when he writes this. If you are full of Christ, listen to this, I love this. If you are full of Christ and growing in that fullness... If you are overflowing with Christ, the appeals of the empty philosophies of our age will bear little appeal to you. If you are full of him, how can you want anything else? Amen? Let's make that our prayer for this year. Father, Your word says we are already filled to full in Christ. Oh, the spiritual riches that belong to us. And yet we confess that we regularly do not live as if we are completely filled in Christ. And our nature wants to take us in different directions, wanting something else. And so I pray, Lord, through this message and through our continued study of the book of Colossians, that you would help us to realize just how full we are in Christ and therefore we would not want anything 
else. God, we pray that you'd help us. And Lord, as we approach the Lord's table uh, this morning and we remember the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that Jesus gave himself for us, not merely to save our souls and take us to heaven someday, but to save our entire lives and to transform us from the inside out to thoroughly renovate our hearts and rebuild us according to your word. And we all have ways in which we need to grow. Perhaps you've touched on one or two in each of us this morning. And we just pray that you would cause us to rely upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And that we would walk with you and do all things for the glory of Christ. Lord, bless this time of remembrance now around the communion table, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.